Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, a mid to late October edition of the podcast in which we dissect a lot about what's going on around the National Football League. For this podcast, uh, we are going to steer clear of all things Gruden and all things uh, emails with the NFL. We're going to stick to stuff on the field from this week. And I think one of the things I'm going to get into heavily with Paul Burmeister, my friend from NBC, is exactly what happened to the balance of power in the AFC with the Monday night result of the uh, sort of the stunning result of the Buffalo Bills, who many of us thought were the best team in football. Uh, Now, what do we think of the Buffalo Bills? So later in the podcast, we're going to have my friend Seth Wickersham, author of It's Better to Be Feared, Uh, the complete story of the 20-year run of the New England Patriots uh, that uh, is coming out this fall. And and, um, I recommend it pretty highly, even for all of you who hate the Patriots. (laughs) It's just a very, very well-reported, well-sourced book. So we'll get to Seth Wickersham after we dissect the news of the week in the National Football League. And Paul Burmeister, I'm going to start by basically saying that we get in trouble every week around this time of year with making things like power rankings or who the best team is. It could be that two weeks ago, we might have thought that the Los Angeles Chargers were the best team in football. And last week, we might have thought that the Buffalo Bills were the best team in football. And this week, maybe... We think it's a team in the NFC. It's, you know, because there's the Arizona Cardinals who are undefeated, and we'll get to them a little bit later. Uh, it, it could be almost any team, but it also could be the Baltimore Ravens, the lone remaining 5-1 and one team in the AFC. I think my uh, lesson here, and what I would like to put out, is essentially that it really is not that important on October 20, 21, 22, what team you think is the best team in football. It matters who it is on February 15th. I mean, a year ago, no one would have thought that, you know, even though Tampa Bay had Brady, they were really struggling uh, to put together any sort of consistency. They went to Chicago in October and lost a very ugly game to the Bears. So I guess... Uh, In the immortal words of that American statesman, Aaron Rodgers, I would just like to say to everybody, R-E-L-A-X, 
because I think the Buffalo Bills are going to be there uh, the first week of, of uh, February and late in January. So, Peter, are you saying all these mock drafts that we do in March don't matter? That all these lists that we create for conversation purpose, uh, we do it throughout the spring, summer, and also in the fall. I mean, I, I'm with you. I totally agree. It's, it's an easy, fun way, on one hand, to create conversation and also some debate, which a lot of people love at this time of year. Uh, but I'm with you. I think it's, it's nice to remove emotion, to not get too caught up in rankings, and just kind of trust what you see especially when we get to this point of the season where there is a decent sample size. So six games in with the new schedule, we're a little over a third of the way through the season. I think teams are starting to become who they are. So if you want to remove the, the four and two or the three and three or the five and one and just trust what you see with your eyes and ignore whatever list that the conversation may demand on Monday or Tuesday, I, I do think it's a very good way of going about it. You know, in watching a chunk of that game, and, and I have to be honest here, I watch more of the baseball game on Monday night than the football game because there's really only one team I pull for in sports, and that's the Red Sox. So now as half the audience throws the smartphone or whatever you're listening to this podcast on out the window, um, I, I'll just say that, you know, to me, the Buffalo Bills did not play a bad game. Uh, and look, there's a lot of reasons why you win and lose a game, but honestly, it reminds me of the ice bowl a little bit when Jerry Kramer just said, Hey, listen, I need to find a little piece of ice here, a little patch that I can carve up and get a good push off of so I can create a little hole for Bart Starr to come through behind me. And that's exactly what he did. And that's how one of the most famous football games of all time was won. You wonder what happens in that game and what happens on that play if Josh Allen doesn't slip and if he actually has good footing coming off to try to make that sneak. And really, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter very much. Tennessee wins the game. But the one other thing I would say to people saying, well, Buffalo fell to earth, I would also say this. Look at some of the games over the years that Tennessee has won at home, you know, especially later in the year. They've had some huge wins in Nashville against very good teams. So last night to me told me more about Tennessee and Tennessee's ability to play good, uh, sort of competent, especially offensive football when they've got so many weapons back you know, because obviously they had their two receivers back uh, for the first time in a while. And, and they've got Derrick Henry and a very efficient quarterback in Ryan Tannehill. Uh, now you have to worry about, look, they might really, with the problems they're having in the secondary, Paul, they might have to outscore people the rest of the year. Uh, to, I mean, I still think they're the class of a weak AFC South. But at, once you start playoff time, if they're as beat up defensively as they are right now, they're going to have to score in the 30s every game to have a chance to win. Peter, I thought the game was really telling about the top half of the AFC and kind of where we find that conference at this point of the season, a little bit more than halfway through October. If, if you start with the thought that to many people, in addition to Buffalo, uh, in whatever order you had the top three teams in the AFC two months ago, 
Kansas City and Cleveland were likely on that list, somewhere on one, two, or three. Neither one of those teams has a winning record at this point. And, you know, kind of looking at that a little bit here last night, this morning, Peter, I zoomed out of the AFC and kind of found it's so much different than the NFC in the sense that over half of the teams are either three and three or four and two, about nine to be exact. So you kind of have all these teams that are either decent or pretty good, or maybe they're really good. And it's going to be fun the next couple of months to see how that plays out. But that's where we are in the AFC. And we had two of those teams last night that are toward the top of that list. And I really felt like it was Tennessee. And I know it could have very easily been Buffalo. I mean, many could say that they should have won that game based off that last player or Josh Allen slipping. But I thought you had Tennessee kind of raising its hand and saying, we're still here. We're still one of the big boys. We should be considered right. on that list with Buffalo and the rest, however you may rank them. And you talk about big games they've won in Nashville. Next week, Kansas City comes to town. So it's a heck of a combo for the Titans to go Bills-Chiefs. Uh, but that'll be a really telling game about this, this large chunk of the AFC that is somewhere between, okay, you're competitive. Let's see if you're really good. You know, let's move on to the team with the best record in football. For the last two weeks, the only unbeaten team in football has been the Arizona Cardinals. Now, everyone viewed, including me, viewed this as the ultimate landmine game uh, when Arizona flew to Cincinnati on Saturday, or flew to Cleveland, excuse me. The reason why it was a landmine game is not because Arizona's a weak team. Arizona is clearly not a weak team. But the reason why it was a landmine game is that they've got no head coach, Cliff Kingsbury. Their, off their quarterback coach is, is out. Uh, the starting center is out, Pro Bowl center, Rodney Hudson. And, you know, they're all missing in action. None of them get on that plane. And I thought what was really interesting, I talked to this guy who I honestly am, I never heard of before Sunday, Spencer Whipple. Now, Spencer Whipple is the assistant wide receivers coach for the Arizona Cardinals. And Cliff Kingsbury designated Spencer Whipple, a calm, cool, straight line guy, 32 years old, as the coach on his staff, who he was going to have call the plays into the helmet of Kyler Murray on Sunday. Tremendous responsibility for Spencer Whipple. And it just goes to show me that, you know, Kyler Murray doesn't blink when something like that happens. The entire team doesn't blink. They go and beat Cleveland. And look, Cleveland is beat up too. They're in trouble. But they win on the road. I don't care if you're playing the the Washington Generals. When you win by 23 on the road with everything against you that Arizona had, that shows me, Paul, that they are going to be a factor very deep into this season. And the way they did it, Peter, showed me that they have a real formula for success offensively. And I know that was a massive change to have Cliff Kingsbury at home and to have Whipple calling the plays there. But if you look at what they did and the kind of plays they, that they ran to, to win by that much, it wasn't really any different than the previous five games. Kyler Murray is throwing the ball between 30 and 35 times a game. He's running a handful of times for really moderate production when you think about how elusive and how skilled he is in that area. If, if you took away the fact that you knew that the, that the way the plays got called and the plan got executed from the sideline, to the field on Sunday was much different than the previous five games. Just the results and how it looked on the field 
was almost exactly right. the same. So this is a team, we talk about identity. They've got a real identity. And what impresses me the most, at, no matter who's calling the plays there in Arizona, is how you can say that Kyler Murray is the most improved quarterback in the NFL. And I think you can also say he's the most elusive quarterback in the NFL. And they're using him in moderation. I mean, he's not throwing it 50 times a game. He's not running it 20 times a game. He's not even running it seven or eight times a game. They're using his improvement and his talent in moderation and also leaning on the defense and a, and a decent ground game. And it, it's an identity uh, that to me at this point offensively is really in all caps with some exclamation points after it too. You know, I'll say one more thing and then we'll, we'll, we'll go to our last topic here. But what, what is so interesting to me is that Cliff Kingsbury, when he took this job, he said, listen, we are going to have one of the best running teams in football. And I'm saying to myself, this is a guy who basically has the reputation of being like a run and shoot offensive coach that he wants to throw the ball 70% of the time. And we found out in that first year in 2019 that he was not kidding at all. You know, they ran for almost 2,000 yards. They ran for five yards a carry. And then again, last year, they run for 4.7. Now they're down this year. I was just looking at it today. They're down to 4.2. But what I like about it is Kyler Murray basically being less of a focus and, and sort of boosting, as Lamar Jackson does in Baltimore, boosting yards per carry. Uh, and instead, you know, you've got Chase Edmonds uh, be, has become a real difference maker in the running game. Uh, he had a 54-yard run the other day in Cleveland. So look, I would agree with you. This is a team that can beat you a lot of different ways. And again, I was a little skeptical of how much J.J. Watt would have left. And again, it's only six games. But J.J. Watt showed me something on Sunday in Cleveland. I watched a lot of that game. And other guys, uh, two, two of their other players, and, and I think Marcus Golden uh, has been golden for them so far. But J.J. Watt was a big, big factor in that game. Golden and Hicks get two sacks apiece. But but J.J. Watt showed that there's still a lot of tread on that tire. Paul, the last thing I really wanted to get your input on, and then we'll go to some quick hit things around the NFL. So I did something in my column on Monday this week in which I said, as of today, right now, here, in my opinion, are the quarterbacks who are playing the best in football right now. Here's my top 12 quarterbacks. And I put a list in there, and needless to say, I got quite a lot of feedback about it. And, and look, I'm just going to read the list right now. I'm just going to go 1 to 12, and then I'll give you one little edit, all right? Uh, number one, Kyler Murray. Number two, Josh Allen. Number three, Dak Prescott. Number four, Lamar Jackson. Number five, Tom Brady. Number six, Aaron Rodgers. Seven, Justin Herbert. 8, Patrick Mahomes, 9, Matthew Stafford, 10, Kirk Cousins, 11, Derek Carr, 12, Joe Burrow. And understand one thing. If I were picking a quarterback for the next 10 years, if you said to me, all right, give me a quarterback who you want to uh, build your team around for the next 10 years, 
Patrick Mahomes, who's eighth on my list of how he's playing right now, would be number one for me. But I picked this list based on what exactly is happening right now. And I give you one last thing before I get your input. If I had to pick it after the Monday night game, I would have to find some way either to make it my top 13 or to wedge Ryan Tannehill in there somewhere, maybe right around Derek Carr, Joe Burrow range. But tell you, Ryan Tannehill, to me, terminally underrated player. And I yep. think he showed on Monday night that in a battle with any great team, he is the equal. The bottom line in this is you can put these quarterbacks in any order, but I named 12 plus Ryan Tannehill, and I'm sure there are others who people would argue about. But I just named 12 quarterbacks. I mean, the reason why I did this is I wanted to make the point is, I wanted to make the point, we are in the golden age of quarterbacks. The kind of age that we've never seen before. And I mean ever. Uh, because on this list right now, I believe that by the end of this year, we will be looking at the 12th guy on this list, Joe Burrow, and saying he's every bit what Dan Fouts was to the San Diego Chargers. So I open the floor to you, Paul. Rip my list, praise my list, fix my <laughs> list. What say you? Maybe a little bit of all of the above. And uh, Peter, I've got to admit, when I got your your kind of outline and plan for what you wanted to talk about today. I, I lit up when I saw this, the top 12 quarterback list and your assignment to me, pick one argument to make with it. And I, I think it all comes down to the criteria that you talked about a lot. And I've got it written down here. How are they playing right now? Uh, that That's what we're basing this off of. Not who you want in the next two months or 10 years, what they did last year, but what are they doing right now? And the one argument that I can come up with that I really have conviction about because there are a number of them that you can, you can fasten yourself to and you know, make that argument. But the number one for me is the guy you have listed at number eight, and that's Patrick Mahomes. And if, if we're, again, if we're based off of what we think is going to happen, I wouldn't be making this argument. But in the previous six games, I, I not only think he's not number eight, I, I would have him below Matt Stafford. I would have him below Kirk Cousins. And that was the... That was the tough one for me. I, I took a whole page and wrote out. I wrote down Patrick Mahomes and I wrote down Kirk Cousins. First of all, on your list of 12, they're the only two that aren't, that are not the quarterback of a winning team. These are three and three teams. So it's really a pretty good comp. If you good go point. back game yeah. by game and kind of how they're playing, I think you'd have to say that Kirk Cousins has had more to do with Minnesota's success than Patrick Mahomes has had to do with Kansas City. I know he's the, the main focus point of what they're doing, but I think Kirk is playing better right now through six games in that offense than what Mahomes is doing in his. I check back in four weeks and, and see how we feel at that point. Uh, but it all goes to, to kind of what your main thesis here, if you can have a thesis about just a fun little topic, uh, that it's just these six games. I don't think Mahomes is in the top 10 right now based off of what he's done through mid-October. You know, now that you mention it, if I was really being religious about this topic, you know, I probably would say, I'd probably say you're absolutely right. I think the one thing about it, Paul, that kind of gives me pause 
is that I watched a lot of the Kansas City game on Sunday. And with the exception of one horrible interception he threw right before halftime. I mean, just pathetic, really. Um, He really played a good game. He used his legs so well. And that's one thing that, you know, clearly if we're talking about the all-around game of what a quarterback does, Mahomes is really asked to do a lot with his legs and not just running the ball, but he's asked to do a lot with his legs uh, to get out of danger, to get out of harm's way. And look, Paul, in the last two years total, Patrick Mahomes in 31 games, I think I'm right in saying 31 games, uh, has thrown 11 interceptions. In six games this year, he's thrown eight. So he's kind of lost the benefit of the doubt, as you say. And a guy like Cousins, if you want to put him ahead of Mahomes, I'm, I'm really pretty good with that. Um, who is not on the list? Who, when you looked at it, you said, man, how do you leave mm-hmm. off quarterback X? Yeah, I had the same thought last night when watching the game uh, that you just brought up, Peter Ryan Tannehill. I mean, especially after last night, deserves a spot. You know, Russell Wilson, I know he's hurt. He's going to be out for a little while. Uh, but, I mean, imagine how difficult this list would be to keep it to 12 uh, if you had to throw in Tannehill and if Russell Wilson was healthy right now. Um, so the, the, I think the name that comes to mind is, is Tannehill. And the interesting part about that, I mean, it's, it's 2021. But if we were doing this in mid-October in 2020 or in 2019, we'd have to come back to this side note of, well, why isn't Ryan Tannehill on here? He is always the guy that the team is winning. He's playing a really nice role in it, and he doesn't show up on lists like that. So um, I, I would like to come up with somebody that you just didn't mention a couple moments ago. Uh, but if I'm being honest here, the one who deserves to be on the most, besides Russell Wilson, is Tannehill. You know, it was very interesting, the response I got to this. And, you know, I had a couple of people um, who really were angry about specific quarterbacks and which I really couldn't get angry about who they were angry about. But a couple of people wrote and said, with as bad as his team is and his weapons way down, you've got to have Matt Ryan on this list. And a couple of people even said, listen, the multiple ways that, um, that Jalen Hurts plays and I, I don't accept this at all because I I just don't think he's been accurate enough early on and shown enough accuracy. But look, if you did 15, which you easily could do, and you did include uh, Russell Wilson, I should have made a note about that, that you know I'm not putting Russell Wilson on now because he's hurt uh, and all that. But but if you if you were to expand the list to 16 or at least a 15, and you had, you know, Tannehill, Russell Wilson, and Matt Ryan on it, just just think about that and think about comparing. You pick any one of those guys, and let's say you would pick Tannehill. If you took any one of those guys and you then said, all right, and, and look, Tannehill's touchdown and interceptions are terrible this year because he just had, they've been running the ball 
to excess, but he really deserves to, to get some credit, uh, you know, and to be on this list. But it just shows the total golden age of quarterback that we're in right now. And, and Paul, I'll just ask you this. Is there a time since you have been watching football that you believe that the overall quality of quarterbacking was better than it is now? And if so, when would that be? I think it's a, it's a really fun discussion to have. And I think you could make the argument that maybe there was a point where the top five quarterbacks in the league, you know, in the Marino, Elway, Kelly, Warren, Moon era, where maybe the top was just as good or maybe even a little better than it is right now. But to me, what makes it stand out, Peter, and I, I think you were hitting at this, the overall. So let's go from five to 15. I think those quarterbacks right now, uh, that's the reason that this list is better than it's ever been. Not because the person you have at three, Dak Prescott, is any better than the person you would have had at three in 1990, whether that would have been Aikman, Elway, or whoever. He's probably not. But five through 15, the, the middle part of the quarterbacks in the league, any one of those guys could pop up into the top 10 and you'd say, yeah, their production, their winning deserves to be in that part of the list right now. Uh, so it's, it's that middle portion, the strength of the efficiency and how well those guys are playing right now. I do think it's better than any time I can remember watching the league. Yeah. I mean, if you went back 25 years and said 1996, how does that compare? I think what you were saying would be absolutely unequivocally right because 1996, you would have had Marino, Elway, Favre, you wouldn't have Peyton Manning yet, but you would have a really good kind of top-heavy list. Uh, you'd have Bledsoe in there. Um, you, you'd, have a, you'd have a good list, but I just think in terms of depth, you know, if, if you were to look at the 12th or 13th best quarterback that year, and I don't know who it would be, but I can, t I can tell you this. He wouldn't have the shine of like a Joe Burrow, um, mm -hmm. at least in my opinion. Look, I want to get into five other topics really quick, Paul, in the remaining time that we have. And so let's exchange uh, two or three sentences each on each one of these topics. Number one, I love Dallas. And I'll just say this. Everybody's always known that this year's Cowboys if Prescott comes back healthy, are going to be huge and great on offense. We didn't know that they were going to have three certifiable stars right now after six weeks on defense. Nobody saw this coming with Randy Gregory. Nobody saw this coming with Trevon Diggs. And nobody could see it coming with Micah Parsons because he's a rookie. I love them because of what they can do on defense. We know what they can do on offense. I'll throw in one more star in offense. It's becoming more and more clear each week, Peter, because he's starting to get a lot of time on all these broadcasts. And that's offensive coordinator Kellen Moore. Uh, I got to know him 10 years ago when uh, NBC had the Mountain West package. I probably did five or six games up at Boise that year. I don't think today is the time to get into all the minutia and layers of what I think about Kellen and what he did then and what he's adding now. Uh, but I have, a, I have a strong connection to his history and playing the position and calling plays and watching it play out these last 10 years. And one of these podcasts, it would be fun 
uh, to carve out a little time and, and talk about some of the history that at the time, I don't know in those meetings or watching them beat up on Air Force that it's going to connect to a, a big part of the NFL 10 years later. But um, it would be fun to talk about Kellen a little more sometime down the road. Will do. Um, topic two, the game of the week in week seven. Is there a soul on planet Earth who a month ago would have said that the best game in week seven was four and two Cincinnati at five and one Baltimore? I don't know of one, but it just shows you what the league thought of this game. It is a regional telecast at one o'clock on Sunday that will be seen by approximately 12% of the United States. That is what everybody thought of the game of game of the week this week. But look, I love the fact that, hey, Joe Burrow is going to go in there and say, hey, show me anything you got. We'll be fine. I can take a hit. I know you're going to hit me. And uh, we are going to make this a game. What do you think of this one, Paul? I think I can't wait to watch two of the biggest stars in the NFL, two of the biggest young stars now on a stage where it's a meaningful, it's a super meaningful divisional game. Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase. And we're, we're, it's pretty early in the whole Jamar Chase thing. But Joe Burrow has shown a lot of promise when healthy the last year plus. And now he's going to Baltimore. It's a game for the top of the division. And I can't wait to see if this 12th-ranked quarterback, uh, and I agree, he probably is about that point right now, if he plays like a top 10 or a top eight quarterback. He's gotten our interest the last year plus. Uh, even though 12% will only watch it live, I think a number of us will make sure we go back and watch it uh, that night or maybe the next morning to see how the Burrow Chase, two huge stars in the NFL, play on easily their biggest stage yet. Number three, Tua worries me a little bit. I understand that it's early in his second year and he was, he's been plagued by injury. I get it. Boy, I watched a lot of that game on Monday, Monday or Sunday morning, rather. Um, he had one really poor throw, one poor interception. Um, I don't know, Paul. What I like, I don't see. He seems to labor to throw. But give me your your thoughts on Tua right now as a quarterback watching another quarterback. I think he's decent. I, I don't think he's been a failure. I don't think he's been a huge disappointment. Uh, but the reaction to and the reality of how he's played is directly connected to what we talked about a few minutes ago. That list of top quarterbacks, whether it's top 10, top 12, or top 15, in the middle there, it's fantastic. So you take a young quarterback who's, if you want to look at the glasses half full, he's been fine, but he's nowhere near a top half quarterback in the NFL. Um, so I, I think the fact that he has been okay instead of great and the reality that the quarterbacks ahead of him, even the ones younger, are playing really, really well, you have to take that into consideration. So um, should they have made that pick that early? Probably not when you look at how the other young quarterbacks are playing and the fact that he's probably somewhere between 20 and 30 in the NFL. And when your defense is as bad as Miami's is right now, it's just not nearly good enough to get it done. What's always going to hurt him, and it's just like, and again, and I do not mean he's not Ryan Leaf. I do not mean to compare him to Ryan Leaf at all. But what is always going to hurt him, when you're picked back-to-back, 
with a guy at another position. You're always going to be compared to that guy. And just like Ryan Leaf was always compared to Peyton Manning, Tua Tagovailoa will always be compared to Justin Herbert. He just will. Yeah. And right now, the comparison will not be pretty. Uh, next topic. So I sent this to you when we were talking about things we'd talk about on the podcast. And I'm sure you have no idea what I'm talking about. But I said, the Raiders are clamming up. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And I'll explain this to you. So the Raiders, huge story right now, obviously. No more John Gruden as head coach. They name a guy who's been a coach in the NFL or in the NFL and in college football for a total of 38 years and has never one time been a head coach in a game until Sunday in Denver. That was Rich Bisaccia. Quite honestly, I would have led my column with Rich Bisaccia on Monday. And I called the Raiders and I said, Will Kiss, who's their PR guy, and I said to him, hey, I really want to get rich. Could you get me rich after the game? Because that's kind of how I work. Um, you know, Sunday I got Dak Prescott. <laughs> you know, I got Spencer Whipple, the unknown play caller for the 6-0 and Cardinals. And I call after games and try to talk to people who are going to be newsmakers when people wake up Monday morning. What are the great stories of Sunday? And, and I could not get Rich Passaccia. And I'm saying to myself, I can't get Rich Passaccia. So Will Kiss, who felt bad, basically texted later and he said, hey, listen, Rich, uh, very polite about it, but he wants it to be all about the team now. He doesn't want to do any of this individual stuff saying, hey, look at me. I'm paraphrasing there. What Will just said, I, I couldn't get him to do it. But I really think the Raiders are a very interesting team now because they went to Denver and that was pretty much a no doubt win against a team in the division it's not terrible. They're not good, but that's not a bad team. And it just showed to me that the Raiders are going to be fighting this year. And they come up on a, a three-week stretch, Peter, that I think is really, really good for them. At some point here, there has to be some separation in the AFC West. And the Raiders have the Eagles, they have a bye week, and they have the Giants. So as we push toward November and once we get to November, the Raiders – at four and two right now, to call those winnable games, I think, is underselling it. Those are two games they should win against the Eagles and the Giants, sandwiched with a bye there in between. So it's very likely that we get to November with the Raiders and this mega ugly story is going to get a little further in the rearview mirror. And they have an excellent chance to have, I mean, five and three maybe, but they ought to be looking at six and two as we hit the second half of the season. So I think just football wise, Things look awfully good for Las Vegas. All right, we're going to end on a positive note. We're each going to pick our most negative team in football, our most <laughs> disappointing team in football over the first six weeks. I will start. It's my pod. Uh, I will start and I will say that my most disappointing team is the Cleveland Browns. And there's a lot of teams that are worse than the Cleveland Browns right now, obviously. But I'll tell you the thing that really kind of disappoints me about the Cleveland Browns. And that is, this was a team that was built to be deep. Okay? This was a team that was supposed to have depth from top to bottom. And when I look at this team right now, and I look at especially 
how I thought their defense was going to be a shining star. Now, they've had injuries. There's no doubt about it. But for this defense right now uh, to be averaging, I think they're giving up 25, 26 points a game. And they have not been sort of the crushing defense that everybody thought they would be. Uh, I, I'm totally disappointed in what I've seen of the Browns, especially in a game that they were really hit hard by injuries, that they lose at home to Arizona by 23. That's just an unacceptable result at this point in their development for the Cleveland Browns. Hey, Peter, as long as we're talking about teams getting thumped well into double digits and underwhelming at this point of the season, my pick is going to be the New York Giants. I, I'm glad I'm in the quiet of the upstairs of my house here because I said this at NBC. You know how it is this part of the country. There are a lot of people very attached, really emotional about the Giants. But right. backing up to before the yeah. season, I mean, I don't have any feeling about the Giants any more than I have about the Broncos or the Texans or the Seahawks. They're just a team that I follow and want to know about. And I think it's very realistic at that point, a few weeks ago, to think, hey, the Giants, continuity on the coaching staff, brought in some really nice talent, Saquon's healthy, Daniel Jones getting more experience. They should be a competitive three and three at this point of the season. I don't think they should have been five and one or even, even four and two, but a progressing competitive team, very realistic. Right. And for them to be one and five coming off of that performance they had over the weekend against the Rams, uh, unacceptable certainly counts. And I think underwhelming uh, fits when the way I look at them. You know, if we had a draft of the most disappointing teams, you know, the, the next pick on my board would be Miami. <laughs> I'm, I'm shocked at Miami. But anyway, Paul, listen, thanks so much for taking the time this week. We'll be back again next week uh, as we take a whip around uh, in the NFL. But now I'm going to get to Seth Wickersham, who's written a book, It's Better to Be Feared, uh, about the long dynasty of the New England Patriots. We got into quite a lot. I think you're going to enjoy our discussion. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. I'm ready to go. Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. <laughs> oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. So back in the podcast with Seth Wickersham, uh, Seth, the book, It's Better to Be Feared, to me, um, one of the reasons why, and I talked about it a little bit earlier in the podcast, one of the reasons why 
I just really think it's a it's a great book for this era is that you know reporting in so many ways is going by the wayside so many people who really make big money in media are people who have strong opinions or and they might be idiotic opinions but people are paying for loudmouths who have opinions and we aren't getting the kind in my opinion the kind of really gumshoe detective kind of reporting that maybe we have gotten in past generations. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't, but it just seems to me that people like you are are scarce. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on, not just to talk about the book and what's in the book, but just the process. When did you first get the idea that I want to do a book on the length and breadth of a 20-year dynasty in the NFL? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, well, the publisher actually had the idea and came to me. It was late 2019. And I had never really thought about doing a book on the Patriots. Um, but when I thought about it, I realized that my entire professional career was spent writing about them. Um, I graduated from college in 2000. Um, and in 2001, one of my very first assignments at ESPN Magazine, the editor sent me up to Foxborough to write about the quarterback who was filling in admirably for Drew Bledsoe and, you know, was having a good run. And uh, I remember I met Tom Brady at the old stadium. You remember what that stadium was like. It was like a high school field. Yeah. And uh, he was wearing a gray sweatsuit and he had a backpack and the backpack was full of beer because he had lost a bet on the Michigan, Michigan state game. And, you know, we graduated from college the same year and we sat down and we talked and um, he said something that at the time I didn't realize the significance of. And he said, you know, football has always come very easy to me. And at the time I was, I was really green and young in my career. And I was just kind of like, who says that? And then you look back on that now and you're like, he clearly, saw things in himself that nobody else saw. And it's moments like that that you look back on it that kind of can become a type of lore in retrospect. And so I felt like that covering the Patriots over the years, I had a ton of stuff in my notebook that had just never seen the light of day. And then I felt like that having covered the NFL for 20 years, I had a good network of people that I could call and meet with to try to understand things that I didn't have in my notebook and how dynamics in the building went. And so that's why I thought I could do it. Is there one piece of reporting, one factoid that maybe nobody would think is that big a deal, but you really worked hard to get and that is a reporter you're proud of? I mean, there's a lot of them. And, and you, you know, as, as you know, in reporting, um, you, you know, sometimes the things that, that, you work hard to get are the things that nobody notices oftentimes, but you're proud of them because you see an evolution of yourself, something maybe you wouldn't have gotten a couple of years ago. I think that one moment in the book that I really, you know, kind of come back to, because I think it's just interesting, is September 2007, the Patriots, the league announces that they're investigating the league for illegal videotaping practices. And Roger Goodell is trying to educate himself on seven years of illegal videotaping practices in a matter of days. 
And he calls around the league and all the head coaches and all the GMs he talks to are just burying Bill Belichick. It's the height of piousness. You got to bury this guy. He's a cheater. He's dirty. You've got to punish him, throw the book at him. And Goodell calls Mike Shanahan, who at the time, you know, was probably the second best coach in the NFL. And he was kind of a, a kindred spirit to Belichick. They had known each other since the eighties. And when Goodell calls Shanahan and he's like, you know, what do you think about this videotaping? What do you think it means? Shanahan reacts by telling Roger Goodell that he's jealous that he didn't think of the videotaping practices himself and that he would have broken the rules and done it in a New York minute because nobody had ever been got, nobody had ever gotten in trouble for illegally videotaping signals. And so you didn't know what the punishment was. So why not push every boundary? And he said, Roger, you can't say that Bill's a bad guy. He just is smarter and does this better than everybody else. And I thought that that was revealing, not only because it showed the mindset of the best of the very best in the NFL and how ruthless that can be, but it also showed the importance on a fundamental level of what they were trying to accomplish with that videotaping. Yeah, I mean, the videotaping thing is so interesting to me because uh, you know, on a personal level, uh, I'll never forget. I had a great relationship with Belichick until the videotaping happened. And I wrote some pretty stark things about it. And I have not talked to him since. And I'm going to ask you to read a little passage in the book in a moment. Uh, but Bill, I think one of the reasons why he has the kind of relationship that he has with people, both in the business, in the media, in life, is he sort of demands full loyalty. And uh, if you don't, if he doesn't get that, if he can, you know, he's going to cut that person off. But I do think that one of the interesting parts of the way that the league always dealt with Bill, you, you paint that picture of Roger Goodell talking to Mike Shanahan and trying to learn about this. The fact is, it was illegal to do that. And I always thought that the Patriots sort of, you know, on the side would just say, hey, listen, everybody is doing something like this. You know, we're not the only ones who do this. It's kind of like if you're going 85 miles an hour on the interstate and you get caught, and you tell the cop, 10 people just passed me, they're going faster. It doesn't mean though that you didn't do it, you know? And I always felt like that part of Belichick, especially coming from the family he came from, you know, his dad being so long at the Naval Academy. And I just, I just have always wondered deep down, you know, what, what his dad, you know, if, if, his, if his dad had any really, really strong thoughts or would have any really strong thoughts about it. What do you think his father would have would say about that today? I don't know. You know, his father passed away right before that entire thing right. broke. And, you know, going back to what you said about Belichick in relationships, I think that that's one of the most interesting things, because obviously, you know, ESPN ran a, a news story about the book and, and, you know, it had some of the juicier tidbits, like, yes, there are swear words in the book. And yes, there are arguments. But the book itself is about the requirements of greatness, and what the cost of that greatness is. And I think that when you look at what are the costs of Bill Belichick's greatness, 
I think that a lot of it comes down to a lot of these broken relationships. And yeah. there's a passage in the book. I, I don't if I can read it, if it's okay with you. Sure, it's, yeah, I'd love you to. It's in 2006, and it's when Eric Mangini leaves to go be the Jets head coach. Remember that Eric Mangini was Bill's boy. I mean, Bill plucked yeah. Eric Mangini out of the PR department at the Cleveland Browns. They were both from Wesleyan. They raised each other. But Mangini once played this joke on Belichick where he set his computer up so that porn would play, would scream from his computer when he opened an email. And Belichick, so Belichick opens the email. It starts screaming out that he's watching porn and making all these porn sounds. Belichick can't figure out how to turn off his computer. He's banging the computer. Eric Mangini and the coaches can hear this in the hallway, and they are doubled over laughing. Finally, Belichick gets under his desk, and he rips the cords out you know, the, the, the plugs out because he can't figure out how to get this thing to stop. I mean, they were really close. And Mangini decides to take the Jets job and it broke their relationship. And I say, if the moments after a tough loss to Shanahan and the Denver Broncos in the playoffs showed Belichick at his most elegant, the next few days revealed him at his, at, as his most savage. Mangini accepted the Jets offer and Belichick took it as a personal betrayal. He revoked Mangini's key card access and had his office boxed up, sifting through his files before returning them. Mangini was prepared. He had already copied his hard drive and offered jobs to many Patriot staffers and coaches, exactly what his mentor would have done. Belichick's behavior was so swift and ruthless that it left even those close to him at a loss and shook members of the coaching staff. If he could do that to Mangini, his boy, the guy on the staff who always had his back, he could do it to anyone. His friends wondered why Belichick could be alternatively so kind, writing handwritten notes, giving hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars out of his pocket, and so indifferent about the closest relationships in his life. Was it his only child upbringing coming out? Did he need only himself? He doesn't hold grudges, a friend of Belichick's had once said. He holds death. With a grudge, there's a chance of reconciliation. With death, there is no chance. And I think that's a really interesting moment. I mean... Yeah, I mean, you you did have a good relationship with him. And, and one of the most interesting things you, you kind of get it when you when you research the Patriots is is how many stories you wrote over the years that have been kind of forgotten that foreshadowed what was coming. And I think that one of those that, that sort of struck me was back in uh, 2000, you wrote a piece at Sports Illustrated wondering whether Drew Bledsoe was the long-term answer for the Patriots at quarterback. Nobody was thinking on those terms except for the coaching staff, which had some doubts about Belichick or had some, some doubts about Bledsoe. And, you know, you were clearly well plugged in and positioned there. And, you know, yeah, I mean, Belichick cut you out. I, I got along great with Belichick for a long time. I would have long conversations with him late at night when he was done with work um, when he would cooperate with certain stories, obviously there was something that happened along the way where he cut me out. It, it, these things happen. And to me, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that makes it, his greatness just a little bit sad. Cause you do wonder, you know, he and Parcells didn't talk for years and you just wonder like, you know, why is he like that? And, and why is it so hard for him to, um, you know, why does that have to be an essential part of his being? Yeah, it, you know, I'll never forget that in 2000. I'll never forget reporting on that story. I mean, there's two two things I will tell you. Number one, that story was amazing that 
the outside world thought Drew Bledsoe was going to be the Patriots code or quarterback for next 12 to 15 years for as long as he could stand. Um, but inside the building, they weren't thinking that way because I think they felt like he was too independent. You know, he didn't, if you do a game plan for the entire week and then on Sunday you change a bunch of plays and you don't have a real great reason why in the, in the eyes of Charlie Weiss and Bill Belichick, they're going to have a problem with that. And similarly, I'll never forget when I did a long story on him in 2004, he, I said to him, I really would like to see your library. And he said, nah, it's in my house. No, no. And the last day I was there, he said, Hey, get, uh, follow me in your car. And we went to his house and he showed me his library. And, uh, the one scene from there that was so unforgettable that I think about to this day, I said, man, you've got the art of war by Sun Tzu in your library. Why do you have that? And he goes, because he had told me I learned something from every book in this room. And I said, what could you learn from the art of war? And he goes, eh, not so much, you know, don't go to battle when the ground is muddy. You know? yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, but, but uh, that, you're right. It's just, it's a, it's a cost of doing business a lot of times in our business. And uh, that's just the way life goes. So I'm, I'm curious about two things, especially the way you break up, it's better to be feared, I think is really interesting because you have the formative years, then you have the middle years, the years of greatness, but also the years kind of, of those two horrible losses. And then you have the more modern years that I think most people gravitate to naturally because it's what most recently happened. But there's something in the first section that no one has written about, no one has talked about, that personally, I find the most interesting thing in the book. And that is Mike Riley, the former assistant coach at USC, uh, who recruited Tom Brady as a high school player. And then Mike Riley, the coach of the San Diego Chargers in 2000, who again was chasing Tom Brady. He didn't get him in as a, as a high school player, but now finally, as the head coach of the San Diego Chargers, he thought he was going to get him. So I want you to tell me the story of Mike Riley, Tom Brady, and the draft pick that never was. Well, Mike Riley has to be the most unlucky human being. <laughs> he, he spotted Tom Brady's greatness before anybody else did. And he, he's talked about it before. Um, obviously, I talked to him for the book, but he, he spotted Tom Brady when he was in high school. He was an assistant coach at USC. And he was told by John Robinson that he had, he had to recruit the Bay Area. So he went to Sarah High in San Mateo, where the coach told him the quarterback was worth checking out. And even though people close to Brady saw how special he was, um, you know, at one point, his high school coach told him, like, you're one of a kind. You're going to be playing in 10 years. Even though that was going on, Brady wasn't highly recruited on the, at the beginning. And Mike Riley really gravitated towards him, and he loved him. And he, he, he had him down to L.A. a couple times on recruiting visits. Then finally, John Robinson says we can't offer him a scholarship. 
And so Brady ends up, uh, you, you know, ending up, he ends up going to Michigan. Years later, they bump into each other at the NFL Combine. Mike Riley is the head coach of the San Diego Chargers. Brady is a prospect dying to be believed, you know, someone who wanted to be believed in. And Mike Riley says, I, I've missed you on you once. I won't miss on you again. He sent one of his assistant coaches to go to Michigan to research Brady, do all the, the material you can. Bobby Beathard, the head coach of the, or the GM of the Chargers says, we're going to pick a quarterback late. You know, who do you want? And on draft well, day. Wait a second. You skipped a step. Mm -hmm. The coach he sent to investigate all things Brady at Michigan came back, Mike Johnson, and he came back and he liked Tom Brady more than Mike Riley did. Yeah. Mike Riley liked Tom Brady so much that he sent Mike Johnson there almost to challenge his own bias, right? He was Back like, check. I like this guy so much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So just make sure that I'm right here. Finally, draft day comes around. They're in the sixth round. And Bobby Beathard says, who do you want? He says, I want Tom Brady. Beathard says, okay. Mike Riley thinks, finally, I've got him. <laughs> and then Beathard comes back 20 minutes later, and he's like, you know, I like some of these other guys better. We're going to skip him. And, you know, the unwritten rule of being a head coach is the GM gives you your quarterbacks, you know. Especially when you are an offensive coach, a quarterback coach, which Mike Riley was. And then fast forward to today, actually 20 years ago today, October 14th, 2001, Brady is playing against the San Diego Chargers in Foxborough and the, the Patriots are down and Brady rallies them to tie the game, throws, it, throws his first touchdown pass in the NFL and then wins it in overtime. And it's like the Shakespearean tragedy of this is just unbelievable that Mike Riley, when Tom Brady ran onto the field and they were down late in the game, Mike Riley knew what he was capable of more than Bill Belichick in a lot of ways. And yet, of all the guys who have overlooked Tom Brady and, and, and we've all, we've talked about them over the years, Mike Riley was really the one guy who saw his potential and was just never able to have the authority to actually capitalize on it and to coach him. It's just, it's an epic tragedy. And it's also just, you know, as a story and as a journalist, it's, it's an unbelievable story to tell. Well, think about, I, I can't help but think about so many things in, in this. It's almost like, Nick Saban going to the Miami Dolphins and the team doctor not passing Drew Brees on the physical. What would have happened if Brees gets passed and he becomes the Dolphins quarterback? Do the Patriots go on this incredible Super Bowl, second Super Bowl run? Or do uh, does Nick Saban and the Miami Dolphins derail uh, the second wave of greatness in the Patriots. Does Nick Saban ever go to the University of Alabama? Yeah. Does he just stay there? So let's let's extrapolate Tom Brady in San Diego. And again, everybody would say, geez, well, maybe Mike Riley would have been a good head coach instead of getting whacked, you know, so early. There's one other thing. You know what would have happened if, you know, again, assuming that Brady could have been some semblance of Brady in San Diego. I'll tell you exactly what would have happened. They would have built a new stadium in San Diego. They would not be the Los Angeles Chargers today. It's the same thing with Peyton Manning and Indianapolis.
Yeah. This was not a, a, a football crazed state until Peyton Manning made it so. And so I think that the way that changed history is just, is stunning. And again, look, Tom Brady would have been, I think it was the 184th pick in the draft. And you never know, you just never know whether he would have worked out in San Diego the same way as it worked out in New England. So you can't absolutely say that it, that it would have happened. In fact, Seth, Tom Brady, after his second Super Bowl, I said to him, do you ever wonder what would have happened if you got drafted by the Cardinals or the Raiders or, or the Raiders were good at the time. I, I, but I picked two or three teams that were bottom feeders at the time. And he goes, I, if I had had to play early, like on one of those teams, said, I, I wouldn't have been ready. I wouldn't have made it. And he said, I probably would be on my second team by now. If, if I was even on a team. And that I find so interesting because I do think, even though Brady never had any doubt, he is realistic about how you get chewed up and spit out in the NFL. Yeah, and Belichick often talked about how, you know, based on what they saw of Brady as a rookie, he, he should have been a sixth round pick. The, right. the coaches, I write about this in the book, but after the Patriots would practice, they would have what, what was called opportunity periods where the guys who didn't get a lot of reps in practice could practice extra and the coaches would hang around and, and watch them. And Brady would always do the opportunity periods. And um, Eric Mangini would coach the defense and Brad Seeley would coach the offense and they would bet on who would win. And Eric Mangini usually ended up winning because Brady was throwing so many balls into the dirt. <laughs> Yeah. Like, he, but the thing with Brady was that like, he couldn't walk off the field unless it was on a good note. He would refuse to leave unless he had like hit that final pass or whatever it was, even if he was late to a meeting or whatever it was. And so you sort of saw his perfectionist tendencies in there, even at early stages. So I want to ask you about two other things. Our time is a little limited, but I want to ask you about two other things. And one is, and you said this, Bill Simmons said it, I thought it was a great, great point on his podcast with you a week or so ago. And he said that the takeaway that he has from the book, and I felt exactly the same way, you know, truth in advertising here, you sent me the book a few months ago so that I could write a blurb for the back of it. Um, so I knew what was in the book. And I felt exactly the same way that Bill Simmons said when he talked to you for his podcast. My big takeaway is it's amazing it lasted 20 years. Now that owner, coach, quarterback never will happen again. Now, I'm not saying that a quarterback won't be great for 20 years, very possible in this era of football because quarterbacks don't get hit anymore. But the fact to have the same owner, the same coach, the same quarterback for a 20 year period is unbelievable. And and although in some ways, a lot of people minimize the role of craft and probably rightfully so, uh, because in some quarters, it's, he has been very, uh, he's been kind of over celebrated for his role in this. But I give Robert Kraft a lot of credit, knowing that he had a great thing going, swallow your pride sometimes, don't joust with Belichick, just understand that 
sometimes with brilliant people, you got to swallow what you want to say and you just got to walk away. And so I, I wonder, as you examine this from 10,000 feet, you amazed something like this last 20 years in modern sports? Absolutely. And, and you're right about Robert Kraft. And, and you mentioned earlier, you know, how I divide up the book and in the middle part of the book is in a lot of ways, it's kind of the, the stuff that I'm most proud of because it was during their nine year drought. That's the middle of the book. And they had plateaued at like the highest elevation that you could possibly plateau, missing out on Super Bowls by a slimming inch of an Eli Manning pass here or there. And yet Belichick and Brady, rather than kind of when going to war with each other over that, delved deep into themselves and reevaluated all of their belief systems and challenged every assumption that they had made that honestly may have worked better than almost anything in NFL history. I mean, they had already won three Super Bowls. And you see like some of the things that Tom Brady did going to work with Tom House. He has completely retooled his throwing motion. He throws the football completely differently now than he did early in his career. And that really started during that drought when he was saying, you know, I missed West Welker in the Super Bowl down the seam by two inches. And I need to figure out a way to be two inches more accurate in the biggest moments of, of the biggest games. The way that Bill Belichick ended up using the Baltimore and the Raven formations in that playoff game against the Ravens that really kind of reignited their dynasty because they were down by 14 against a team that was not scared of them. And Belichick realized he needed to be resourceful and had thought ahead. I think that like that to me is, is really interesting because you talk about how rare it is that these things, that these guys stayed together for 20 years. Those traits are so rare that they would look, you know, the dig within themselves and try to improve, even if they were, during that entire time, considered the best at what they did in the NFL. And so, you know, when, when we talk about what makes sustained greatness, I think that that's one of the, the really essential ingredients is that like, these two guys looked at coming up just short in the Super Bowl as like a failure that almost took on an, like an atmospheric type of quality to the point where they needed to look within themselves and figure out a way forward. And it was really during that time to talk about your reporting again. There's a lot of people who wonder like, who was the first person that Brady said, you know, I'm going to play until I'm in my 40s too. Like he said it to me for a while. I thought I was the first person. I think Bill Simmons at one point had said he thought he was the first person. I think that it was you yeah. actually that was the first person during that time. And again, Brady was not winning championships during those years that he said, you know, I'm going to play into my 40s. And so you just saw like how they were able to redefine their own expectations and also redefine anybody else's idea of the inevitable during that period. Um, two, two quick things to end. Um, so one of the things that you focus on throughout the book is, and sometimes I'm sure you don't even know that you're focusing on it because it's just the way it is. Tom Brady is at his core, an extremely optimistic person. And for those who might look at him and say, oh, he's ruthless, uh, he's this, it, all this other stuff, he's selfish, whatever it is. Tom Brady is an optimistic dude. And I have sat with him on several occasions 
um, you know, and, and no more than after the comeback against Atlanta and sitting there for two hours just thinking about and talking about what lay ahead for him. And it's just, he's he, obviously you're going to be happy after you win a Super Bowl. Everything was just optimistic. And I think sometimes in life and in sports, we don't realize how much a person's approach to what he does for a living influences whether he succeeds or fails. Talk to me about that. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that we, we spend all this time talking about the differences between Brady and Belichick, and there are a lot of them, but they share that quality. They come at it from different angles. Brady is almost kind of in the ether about it, and he's so earnest about it. And Belichick is an optimist in the sense that he can only believe that way after discovering all the ways that things can go wrong. But yeah, look at the look at their how it's played out on a global stage. Brady rallying the Patriots down from double-digit fourth-quarter deficits twice in Super Bowls. All of Belichick's brilliant goal line stands going back to 86 when he was with the Giants and they stopped the Broncos on the goal line in the Super Bowl and really changed that game. Um, and I wanted to know how that came to be because Brady was a whiner. He has used that word to me and to others. He, he, he would blame everybody except for himself. And there was a really pivotal moment in his life where he was at Michigan and he was buried on the depth chart and he doesn't see a way out. His dad's like, I don't think you're going to play here. And Brady's like, yeah, you know, you might be right. And he goes to Lloyd Carr and he says, I think I'm going to transfer to Cal. And that night he meets with Greg Harden, who is his counselor at Michigan. And, you know, he's whining to him about how he's going to leave. He needs to get out of Michigan. He wants to play. And how does Greg Harden respond by giving him a hug? No by showing him tough love no he laughs at him <laughs> and he starts he starts laughing in tom brady's face and he says you want to leave go ahead you haven't done shit here anyway no yeah. one is gonna care if you leave and if tom brady had left and gone to cal he probably would have got had a good career and would probably be out of the nfl and successful in business right now but those words kind of reignited his competitive juices and got him to look at the glass half full rather than half empty and he you know came back to Lloyd Carr the next morning and he said I'm going to stay here and I'm going to prove to you that I'm the best quarterback on this team there are so many parts of that story that are interesting and, and have lessons for people but one of the parts that has a great lesson for people is that <clears throat> every time that Brady thought he had the job uh something happened and especially his last year they brought in the superman Drew Henson and, uh, and, and Carr had this bizarre, uh, you know, this bizarre way of playing them where Brady plays at the beginning and then he platoons with, with Drew Henson and even they're winning games. So he keeps doing it, even though Henson is clearly not playing well, but those are the kind of things he's had to beat his whole life, which I firmly believe that his training at Michigan was great a great runway for what happened to him at New England. Well, and people look at Lloyd Carr like, oh, he was a bad coach because he didn't see Tom Brady's greatness. Tom Brady was not fully formed. Right. And you know from knowing Tom Brady as you do, and I do from the conversations that I've had with him, you know, over the years, he almost looks at football like a means of self-actualization. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense to me 
like the last year, the Bucks beat the Chiefs in the Super Bowl, and Giselle Bunchen runs onto the field and she hugs him and she says, "What more do you have to prove?" And Brady figures out a way to change the subject because the Super Bowls for both Brady and Belichick really are almost like a byproduct of a larger compulsion and obsession and deep need that even though we we've watched it play out over all of these decades, I still don't think we quite understand just how essential it is to their beings. Each of these guys could have left many times by now and they just refuse to do so. And I think it speaks to something very intense within them that no matter how many times we think about or we watch play out, we still don't quite understand just how essential it is to their beings that they do what they do on Sundays. How does it end for Bill Belichick? I think that when he walks away, he's always said privately that he wants the team to be set up well. He does not want to hand a bad roster over to his, success, his successor. And so I think that when you look at Mac Jones, yes, they picked him to fill a need, but I also think they picked him because the hardest thing in the NFL is to develop a Super Bowl quarterback. He won the lottery with Tom Brady and developed the hell out of him. He developed a Super Bowl caliber replacement in Garoppolo before he moved him. And when you look at Mac Jones, I think that it's kind of a legacy piece. And if Mac Jones, and I think he's played pretty well this year, especially in the fourth quarter of a couple games, we'll see. Bill Belichick's going to be 70 years old in April. He always said, I'm not going to be Marv Levy coaching into my 70s. We'll see what happens. Yeah, my gut feeling is exactly as yours is that he gives it at least two or three more years and then hands it off to pick a successor, Josh McDaniels, Steve Belichick, somebody we don't know. You know, that's the other thing. Their coaching staff has really changed to me and not for the better. Um, you know, they, they're, they're really a lesser coaching staff right now. So uh, Belichick might need to shuffle up his coaching staff too over the next few years and try to bring in a few new disciples. We'll see. Um, but anyway, look, Seth, thanks so much for taking all this time for joining me. The book is, um, I can't emphasize this enough, just from, uh, from a reporter's standpoint, it's just so well done. So many questions are answered and you really get a great idea, particularly with Belichick and Brady of what makes them tick by reading this book. Uh, so I congratulate you on it. And I wish you the best with it. Thank you very much. My thanks to Seth Wickersham. And of course, my thanks as always to Paul Burmeister uh, for helping me run traffic in the Peter King podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the Peter King podcast. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.